Well, good morning. How are you doing? If you're visiting today, we are honored at your presence. We hope you enjoy your time with us. We welcome those of you watching by live stream somewhere around the world. Also very honored to have this morning the mayor of San Antonio, our own Ivy Taylor, who happens to be with us visiting in the 11th service, Ms. Taylor, and her lovely daughter, Morgan. God bless you. I told her, I told her backstage, uh, I'm so glad she wasn't seriously injured in the car accident uh, a week or so ago. And I said, uh, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of female bashing about women drivers. But I says, maybe you'd be better off to replace those uh, male deputies with some female deputies who know how to drive, keep her safe. But God kept her safe, and we're glad that He did. So we're glad you're here as well, and hope you enjoy your time with us. Are you fiested out? Come on. Come on, man. Don't let a little rain get you down. The Spurs are doing good. They play today, about 2.30. Pray for our team. They've got a good shot again this year. Let's talk about how to make your life miserable. Actually, a few of you could come up on stage and do a better job. You work real hard at it. But I want to give you some tips from Scripture. Everybody wants to be happy. Happy is being studied about, written about more than ever before. I'm encouraged to know that God is pro-joy. The Bible commands us to be joyful. So it's the evil one who actually loves human misery, not God. So take a look at Philippians chapter 1 on your smartphone or your Bible if you're carrying it, beginning in verse 12, or just listen as I read. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, he's talking about his current circumstances, he's in prison, he's in chains, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have become confident. They're confident in the Lord, and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, that's all because Paul is confident and bold, although he's in a bad situation. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is being preached, and because of that I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by execution. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two choices. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in my body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with you for your progress and joy your joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound and spread because of me. 
an extraordinary life of an extraordinary guy named Paul. So let me from his life give you four misery-enhancing strategies that you don't want to do. Strategy number one, if you want to make your life miserable, wait to be happy until circumstances are just right. And if you do that, guess how long you will wait? Forever and ever. As long as it takes the Cowboys to win another Super Bowl, you might wait a long time. Now, notice Paul says in verse 12, what has happened to me? He's talking about his circumstances. What has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. I wonder how many people saw that. Then in verse 19, he says, I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So he's referring to his circumstances, which are imprisonment. Now, if you and I were thrown into a Roman prison, it probably wouldn't make you happy. Paul said, I want you to know how I feel about what's happened to me and how I view my circumstances. You might think I would be discouraged sitting in prison, but to the contrary. It has become clear throughout the whole palace guard, I'm actually in chains for Christ. Even his bad situation has meaning and purpose. In ancient times, prisoners were often physically chained to guards. Paul is chained to soldiers in what he calls the palace guard, Caesar's guard, kind of like the secret service for the president. He can tell them about Jesus all day long, and they can't go anywhere because they're chained to him. Paul is, I thought about doing that to these chairs, but it might not be a good idea. So Paul is saying, I've been trying to figure out how I can get the gospel to Rome into the palace of Caesar. And usually you have to bribe somebody to do it. But now he says, Caesar is chaining his guys to me. They can't get away. I'll just say, do you want to hear about Jesus? And I don't care what they say. I just go ahead anyway and there's nothing they can do to stop me. So Paul, in this situation, doesn't think he's their prisoner. He thinks they're his prisoner. Perspective, folks. Paul says, because of what's happening to me, not only is that the case, not only is the word getting to Caesar's people, but also because I'm facing this with courage and joy, not happiness, joy, because Jesus is here and He's at work in your situation, whatever it might be. Because of that, other brothers and sisters are looking at what's going on and it's kind of getting them fired up. They're saying, well, if Paul can live that way, because joy and courage are contagious, we can live that way. Paul said, I want you to know how I view what's happening to me. Now, the happiness paradox says that I can never be happy if my ultimate goal in life is to be happy. If I choose meaning and purpose, happy gets thrown in. But if I choose happy, I'll end up with neither meaning and purpose nor a happy life. The happiness illusion is that I believe I'll be happy if I get whatever circumstances I desire, if the things that happen to me are the things I want to have happen to me. Now, how often do you think we get that? That's why most folks are so grouchy. Because happiness is so fleeting. It's not the word the Bible uses. The word God uses is joy. Because happiness is just a feeling. And feelings are like visitors. They come and they go. They're not permanent. 
And one of the most reliable findings in all of happiness research is that people are terrible at predicting the things they think will make them happy. If I could just have his job, if I could have this salary, if I could have that house, that car, that marriage, this body, that lifestyle, then I would be happy forever. And the problem with all those things is they make you happy, but it's kind of like a McDonald's Happy Meal. It doesn't last long, and you're not happy anymore. It doesn't have any eternal significance to it. So that people go away thinking, I must have wanted the wrong thing, or maybe I'm the only person who thinks this way. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Well, fundamentally, there is something wrong with you and me, and it's that we don't understand the difference between happiness and joy. Happy is a feeling. It's an emotion. Feelings are hard to define, but you know when you get them. Feelings kind of push and pull in our life. It's either something that's pleasant, and I'm drawn to it, or something unpleasant, I push it away, I don't like it. So pretty much all feelings can be put into the category of positive or negative. Positive ones are happiness, pleasure, delight, curiosity, contentment, serenity. Unpleasant ones are anger, fear, bitterness, sadness, depression, and worry. Often when we greet people, we'll say, how are you feeling today? But we never ask them, how are you thinking today? Because how we think is very important to determine how we're going to feel. As a man thinks, so is he. It isn't as a man feels. I feel like killing people on 281 sometimes. <laughs> but that's just a feeling, and it goes and it comes. And some days I think, well, what a courteous driver that is. God bless that person. But my feelings are so f flippant. They're so transitory. They, they're like uh, smoke. They just they evaporate so quick, and they don't leave anything permanent or lasting. So if you want to make happiness your goal, you're never going to be happy. But if you make joy your goal, then you've got something that will sustain you even in bad circumstances. So how we think is really important. Happy is my feeling when something I like happens to me, and that's not always very often. Ever get called to jury duty? Anybody real happy about that? I've done it five times, and I can tell you we probably all weren't very happy about it. But this last time I went, the lady judge said something that impacted my life and brought me back to out of happiness back to a joy and a purpose and meaning. She said, I want to thank all of you today because I know you're busy people and you have busy lives. Now she's got my attention. You've got a lot of things to do, and this is kind of an interruption. But I want to tell you on behalf of the judges in our legal system in Bear County and really our nation, we're grateful for your service today. And she went on to remind all of us that jury duty, which might be kind of low on the happy producing scale, is actually quite high on the meaning and purpose scale. It's a very meaningful thing to do. And she says, the reality is right now today, while you and I are in this room, there are people around the world fighting, and in some cases dying, for the right to exercise the privilege you're serving right now, trial by jury and thank God for it. And if you go—let me tell you something, you want me on your jury. And that's why we have 12. I just came back from Singapore. They don't have but one judge. They don't have trial by jury. So if he's prejudiced or if he's biased, you're, you're cooked. 
but you get a jury, you only have one person who needs to be convinced something is true. And as a result of that, then you get a hung jury. Case, case closed unless they want to go to retrial. Is, did I get that pretty much right? You, you government folks in here, I think that's pretty much right. And that's, that's pretty good. Because some people will say, well, I just believe he's, you know, I could believe you're guilty, but if the, if the prosecution didn't, didn't prove it, you're walking. I said, personally, I think this guy's guilty, but they did not prove it. Evidence did not substantiate it. Have a good day. Now, that's how I want to be treated, and that's how you want to be treated. But if you're sucking your thumb mad and trying to figure out all the angles to get off jury duty, then you don't realize what you're doing to destroy a system that's meant to protect you. And for the most part, nothing's perfect. It's, a good, it's the best system in the world. I'd rather have that than what they've got in Singapore. I'd rather have that than some other places in the world. So have a good attitude about it and say, today justice is going to be served because I'm here. I won't allow race or prejudice or wealth or my inconvenience or my bad snotty attitude. I won't let any of that cover over truth and justice because God's for truth, not, not for how you feel, right? Okay. All right. Thank you for four of you. Thank you. So I got inspired sitting there. I was so fired up, I couldn't wait to get on a jury. The judge asked me, sir, would you be willing and able to say if the defendant was guilty? I said, are you kidding me? I teach the Bible. The Bible says all have sinned. Everybody's guilty. Of course he's guilty. I'm guilty. You're guilty. The whole world is guilty. <laughs> I didn't get selected for jury duty. But I definitely got she got a lot of unhappy people turned around by one lady judge who had a strong conviction about meaning and purpose. And suddenly, I got rid of my unhappiness and felt a purpose, and then I got a little bit of joy and felt good about what I was doing. Happiness is so fickle. We live for happy, and it just comes and goes based on what happens. Paul talks a lot about fruit of the Spirit. That's like love and joy and peace. Again, a guy named who's a, a theologian and a writer, Dr. Dallas Willard says the fruit of the Spirit is not a feeling. That is what he called a condition. It's a condition of your personality, your character. It's your basic orientation of life. It's your condition. It's got nothing to do with how you feel. And therefore, it's stable no matter what the circumstances may be. No matter how bad it is, I believe God loves me. I believe God's in control, that He works all things, Romans 8, 28, for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose and for the glory of God. I know that as a settled fact. It keeps me stable even though unpleasant news may come to me. You've got to have something besides a feeling to hold you. And so when I know God's in control and that my life is connected to Him, that I will never leave you and never forsake you, that I'm your buckler, your shield, then I have to figure out then what's He up to in this situation? How can I be an instrument for Him? And nobody's going to do anything, including the devil, without God's permission. So why am I sitting there biting my fingernails and so upset and unhappy? Right? Well, the doctor said it's, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But God's still God. He still redeemed you. You still have eternal life. You're going to win in the end no matter what. So would you quit sucking your pacifier, perk up a little bit and say, okay, God's up to something in this. What am I going to learn? What does He want me to do? Who am I supposed to touch or reach? Maybe getting my treatment? I don't know. Like Paul, he's in jail. What good is that? They had him in prison there for three years, and he couldn't do anything except write 75% of the New Testament. God's always got a good idea, folks. I just don't like them all, but he's got a good idea. 
I'm just being honest. I don't like all of his ideas, but they're good. I know they're good because he's good. And I just have to get my mind renewed about that. And so love is not, a, is not a feeling. You young people, you get married. Oh, I've never been to an unhappy wedding. It's the rest of it that gets unhappy. And if you think you're going to stay married together 41 years, some of you 50, a few at 60 in here, you ain't going to get there through happy. You, you got to have some deeper meaning in life than that. Love is a, is a will. It's a, it's a choice. It's a pervasive attitude of who you are. When Jesus hung on the cross, having been mistreated, falsely convicted, and paying for the sins of humanity, He didn't say, I'll get you when I come back. That's, that's, a, that's a feeling. Yeah. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Love. Love was coming out of him because that's what was in him. It didn't have a thing to do with the circumstances. So love is a choice. My feelings in marriage come and go. 41 years. I've had a lot of feelings. Murder, <laughs> divorce. Yeah, but I don't live by feeling. I live by a choice and a commitment that God has a mate for me. I made a commitment till death do us part. And by golly, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> it's not based on how I feel. And then some days when you feel bad, a week later you feel good. Don't make a decision that's major when you're feeling bad, when you're feeling unhappy. That's an emotion. That's not the will of God. Don't do it. Don't make it when you're mad. Wait 24 hours. Calm down. Get a good night's sleep. Things will get better tomorrow. You'll have better perspective. So if you idolize the feeling of being in love or or feeling loved, you'll never produce this fruit of the Spirit called love and make it a condition, because you're still living for a feeling. So if I idolize the feeling, I'll never get into the condition. Peace is also a fruit of the Spirit, and uh, we all want peace in our life. But peace is not based on my circumstances. I can have peace in the midst of a storm. That's what we sing that song, and it's a great song, and it's great theology. Peace is when my will isn't under constant straining and striving, because I know that in God how things are going to turn out. But if I idolize peaceful feeling, isn't there a song from the 70s? I got a peaceful, easy feeling. The Eagles sang that. Anybody remember that? By golly, that was good music. Yes, sir. Yeah, they sang that. If I idolize having a peaceful, easy feeling, then when I don't have that feeling, I'm going to medicate myself or I'm going to go into conflict avoidance because I won't do the hard work necessary to enter into the condition of being a person who is at peace with God and where the peace of Christ is reigning in my heart. Joy is not a feeling. It's a condition. It's not an emotion. Joy is a pervasive sense of well-being. And the Bible has a word for it. It's a Hebrew word, shalom. And it involves choices, but it's a condition that I have to grow into. I'm joyful because Jesus modeled shalom or joy in his life. He taught about it in his teaching. He died and rose from the dead for us to obtain it. So he's promised to give us peace. He's promised to give us joy. And that was in the midst of turbulent situations. It wasn't an emotion or a feeling. Paul is chained. He's in prison. But he has a pervasive sense of well-being no matter how bad it looks. And it's interesting what our language says. Sometimes we greet each other. We say, well, brother, how you doing? And the brother will say, well, I'm doing okay under the circumstances. Well, Paul didn't live under the circumstances. 
his God was over the circumstances. So he lived over the circumstances. Therefore, joy was just the condition that he found himself in. I mean, we get fickle. We're bad at being able to predict what will make us happy, and we underestimate the power of little interruptions, little problems, little hiccups that we have in our lives. I remember one day I had to get up early and go somewhere to speak, and when I walked out from the back door over to the garage where the water heater is, water was just pouring out, just gushing out. And at that moment, I did not have a peaceful, easy feeling. It was not good. But then the thought occurred to me after my reaction, this is just a stupid water heater. This is not being in chains for Christ. This is not facing martyrdom at the hands of Caesar. This is not being beheaded by ISIS. This is a stupid water heater for crying out loud, Rick, suck it up. We can solve this problem. It's just a temporary inconvenience. I wish I'd have gotten to that spot quickly, but it took a little navigating to finally get there. If you want to make yourself miserable, wait for circumstances to make you happy. If you want to live in joy, don't ask, God, why am I in these circumstances? But say, God, where are you in this circumstance right now? Who could I help today in these circumstances? How could I serve your purpose? Or whom might I serve in these circumstances? Who could I inspire today? Who could I give encouragement today? God, how are you with me in these circumstances? Because if I'm going to be with God, it's got to be in these circumstances because these circumstances right now are the only ones I'm living in. So if God's for me and God's with me, He's with me right now in stage four cancer, in a divorce, in a financial setback or loss, in some great disappointment or a breakup of a relationship. God didn't go anywhere, sweetheart. He's right here. He's with you. And you've got to be thinking a little bit better than that, right? God's up to, He may want you to reach somebody that you could not reach in another way. And you might be in a hospital bed, and it might be one person, a nurse, isolated and busy, and God puts you here through a bad situation in order to be a voice of hope or witness or good news to that person. But He never wastes sorrow. He works everything. He didn't say everything was good. He works everything for our good, His glory, who are called according to His purpose. So, every time I face a rat's kind of a situation, I let that verse comes screaming through my mind to give me joy and to give me peace, which is not an emotion. I hate the circumstance, but I know God's in it. So wake up, sober up. What are, you, what are you doing here? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to learn? What are you teaching me? How can I help somebody? How can somebody watch me go through this, see me confident and bold, and then see victory emerge so they can be confident as they face a problem? See, God wants to bless people beside you. It ain't about you, it's about others. Second principle to be miserable. You want to make your life miserable? Compare yourself to other people. Paul says some people preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The others preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, hoping they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Notice the people who are jealous and envious and comparing themselves. They're not in the church. They're not out of the church. They're inside the church. That stinks, doesn't it? Instead of focusing on their own life, what's God calling me to do? God, how can I be helpful? 
They're thinking, hey, look at Paul. Paul's more successful than me. Look at his ministry, his church. It's bigger. It's growing more than us. I'll compare myself to what Paul does, and if I can do better than Paul, I'll feel better about myself. Actually, Lord, if it could happen that Paul could do worse, I would really feel better about myself. You listen to preachers talk, and they damn and criticize anybody else that gets big or grows. They, they can't stand it. Joel Osteen picked up more bad news than anybody, and he didn't even want the job. His daddy died. He just, he got thrown into it, and God gave him favor, and the rest of the people that have been around a long time are mad and upset. God chose him instead of them. What does that say about you? That's why God didn't choose you, you arrogant, puffed-up toad. That's exactly why God ain't going to use you. You get miserable. Compare your marriage to somebody else's. If it's better, easier, happier than mine, then I'm miserable. Compare your salary, your house, your career, your car, your kids, your body, your looks, your IQ, your education, your level of success. And when you envy somebody, not only are you unhappy because of what you're not getting, you're unhappy because of what they are getting. I'd be less miserable, Lord, if they were a little more miserable. That's why we say misery loves company, doesn't it? What a sad indictment. A woman dies. She goes to the gates of heaven, and she asks St. Peter, how do I get in? Peter says, all you have to do is spell one word correctly. She says, what's the word? Peter says, love. Well, she gets right in. Several years later, St. Peter asked her if she'd watch the gate a few hours for him. She does. Much to her surprise, while she's watching the gate, her husband shows up. And she says, sweetheart, how have you been? He says, well, actually, quite well. You remember that beautiful young nurse who took care of you while you were dying? I married her, and then I won the lottery. I sold the little house where you and I lived. I bought a great, big, beautiful home. My beautiful new wife and I were skiing in the Swiss Alps when I had an accident that brought me here. I'm so glad I made it up here. How do I get in? She said, well, you have to spell one word correctly. He said, what's the word? She said, Czechoslovakia. Jealous, envy, comparing, Czechoslovakia, love it. Here's here's the thing about comparing. You will never see a happy, jealous person, ever. Paul talks about two groups of people. Some people watched Paul's ministry and said, thank God. Other people watched it and said, why, God? Why him, not me? Why can't I be Paul instead of Paul being Paul? I don't want to be me. I want to be him. One researcher at Stanford University did a study on comparison, people comparing themselves to other people. Their hypothesis going in was that it must be that unhappy people compare up. They look at others and what they have, what they possess, how much money they have, uh, and they're, I'm unhappy because I look up at everybody doing better than me. So they figured happy people must compare down. They look at people who have less money, less education, less success, and it makes them happy. But what they discovered was that happy people did not compare at all. They didn't compare up. They didn't compare down. They actually use deeply held internal values as the yardstick for how they're doing. And they took pleasure in other people's successes. And when the other person won, they said, yeah, way to go. And they showed compassion and concern when others suffered loss or failed. And a great place to start if there's somebody in your life who you envy, if you wrestle with comparison, start praying for that person. You say, well, it hurts, then pray. 
Keep praying for them. Pray for other churches to grow and be blessed. Pray. God says pray for your enemies. You want to bet how many churches do that? Zero. It's just a good verse to quote. Don't want to do it. But God's got power in that when you do it. So do it. Number three, if you want to make your life miserable, do it alone. You won't find alone anywhere in Scripture. God sets the solitary in families. It is not good that man be alone. A two- or three-fold cord is not easily broken. You'll find together. If you want to run fast, run alone. If you want to run far, run together. I want to last. I want to be in this race a long time, so I'm connected. And I, I'm, I'm telling you, Paul is connected to a lot of people in that Philippian church. He calls them brothers and sisters. He declares how much he loves them and how he feels about them. There was a study done about longevity, and the researchers thought going into the study that people who lived the longest would be people who had somebody caring for them and watching over them. But the contrary was true. It was completely wrong. They discovered, it turns out, that those who had someone to care for lived the longest and had the highest quality of life. Now, let me pause and preach for just a second. Over 30 years here, we've watched people, well, uh, in every church has it, but, but understand the, the feeling behind it. They don't ever get hooked in with a team, a small group, or people. They don't serve anywhere. Their only focus is themselves. Nobody spoke to me today. The church is not friendly. No, sweetheart. Reload your girdle. You're not friendly. That's why the Bible says clearly, they that have many friends must show themselves friendly. So I'm an extroverted, outgoing person. I got a lot of friends, but I don't, everybody I try to be friends with isn't my friend, but a whole lot of people are because I'm friendly. You can't show up and want everybody to bow and kiss you. How are you doing, darling? How's your hip today? How's your... Well, then when that doesn't happen, and then you come to church, well, then nobody asked me about my hip today. Nobody was concerned. The church is not friendly. People don't care there. I need to go to a smaller church. I need to go to a bigger church. I... No, you need a life. You need to realign your mind. You need to start serving other people, and you give, and you shall receive. You become healthy. You become whole. You feel significant. You feel successful because you're giving. Jesus said, the Son of Man didn't come to be pampered, to be served. I came to serve and to give. And these people that want you to suck up and kiss on them all the time are very emotionally needy people, and it's wrong. I'll give you compassion, but not sympathy. You're going to have to take responsibility for your life. And I'm telling you, if you don't get connected, you're violating the very principle of the kingdom of God. God teams people together. There's a ministry team. There's a praise and worship team. There, there, there's prayer teams. There's small groups and homes around the city. Every place in the world to connect with people. So think about that. God says it's not good that you be disconnected. That's life in the kingdom. He said, I'd love to be with God, verse 25, but I think if I keep on living, it'll bring joy to your faith, so I'm going to do that. And researchers find that in most relationships, they can determine whether it's going to go bad or good based on a five-to-one ratio, five positive life-giving comments to one negative. So I really think about that a lot, especially even with our children. Uh, you, we've got some grouchy people in this church. 
and we have small groups that have happy people in them. Some groups are just all happy. So if you'll see me after the service, I'll take every grouch, and I'll put you in one of those groups that has nothing but happy people so we can balance the thing. You see, because God says not only must you have five to one as an employee to employer, also in marriage, also in church, which is why the writer of Hebrews says, let us encourage each other daily. Your words are important in your marriage, in relationship to your children. Raise your children in the nurture and admonition. It means occasionally there's a spanking. Occasionally there's correction. Occasionally there's a word that's uncomfortable and a bit negative. But balancing that with five positive words. So be sure as a parent when you have to admonish that there is the embellishment of positive affirmations. I believe in you. You have great potential for your life and future. That's not who you are, what you just did. This is who has God made you to be, and I'm for your great future. Do that in marriage. Sweetheart, you look skinny in that outfit today. Where'd you get that? My goodness. You have to work at this. This doesn't come out of our Adamic nature easy. You have to pay attention and watch the children and watch your wife and, and compliment your friends and speak. God's going to get you. I'm helping a guy right now going through some legal problems, and I quote a scripture, or I'll quote a statement, or I'll text something that's just positive and encouraging. How hard is that? And God says, do it daily, not monthly. Well, I told my wife I loved her 40 years ago, and if anything changes, I'll, I'll let her know. That's, that's not good enough. Daily encourage people daily. So check your relationships out. Check your marriage out. Check your employees out. You'll get more productivity and fruitfulness if you'll use that five-to-one ratio, and that's interesting. Number four, here's the last one. If you want to make your life miserable, adopt pessimism as a life orientation. Some people do it. There's a lot being studied and written about optimism in our day. One writer distinguishes between little optimism and big optimism. Little optimism focuses on dipstick little hopes. I hope I find a convenient parking place when I get to church this weekend. I hope I'll see somebody at church I like. I hope the sermon's almost over. It's not, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, it is almost over. Big optimism focuses on the big picture. We're on the verge of something great. This is a magnificent time to be a human being alive on this planet. We've got the greatest opportunity we've ever had to make something good happen for our city. That's positive optimism. Now, if I'm the mayor or if I'm a district attorney or I'm a a representative of this city, a councilman or whatever, that's what I want to bring to the table. And in church, it's the same way. Every time we've had a breakthrough, I'll get 15 people who say, well, I don't think we can afford that. Well, I don't know how we'll get that done. That was with our playground, which was paid cash. That was with our youth room downstairs, which was about $200,000 or something. There wasn't any money in the bank for that, but we had a vision. We had a dream. And I says, by golly, I know it is the will of God. We have this thing done. We will find a way to get it done. I've had board members over the years and 30 years say, we can't do that. No, we can't afford that. No, I don't see how we can do it. I said, is this a right thing to do? Yes. Then God will make a way. He will. And in every case, he did. In every single case, you shut your mouth being negative. Shut your Now, I'm not talking about something illegal, something immoral, something unethical. Speak. 
But boy, when it comes to how we can resolve a problem in church, in city, or attaining our, fulfilling our purpose to build the different facilities we want to help our, our children in school and charter school, whatever our plans are for our activity gymnasium for the, for the kids and for the community here, that's, that's all on my table. I am 71 years old. I am not going anywhere until what God put in me gets out. And if you can help me, good. But I've had guys say, oh, no, we can't do that. I don't see any way we can do it. I said, well, you don't see much, do you? You think, you think we could put our heads together and say, let's come up with a plan. And I've had other people get together on that same problem, come up with a plan, work it, and 12 months later, just did it, it worked perfectly. Not only that, God threw in an extra $100,000 bonus on the thing to make it work as well. You do God's work God's way, God will provide. But if you walk around, well, I don't know how, I don't see, we walk by faith. We walk by the Word of God. We walk by wise counsel, but, but we do. If you can't see it, you can't have it. What do you see? Can you see a better city? Can you see a better economy? Can you see a better church? Can you see a better life, a better marriage? If you can't see it, you can't have it. Abraham, look at the north, south, east, and west, all the land you can see. I'll give it to you. And I ask me, what do you see? Tell me what's in your heart. You remember Dan Aykroyd? I loved him and John Candy, the great outdoor movie. They're sitting on this lake, on this cabin, on this beautiful place, forest all around them. And Dan Aykroyd asked John Candy, what do you see? And he said, I see trees. And Dan Aykroyd said, well, nobody can accuse you of a great vision, can they? What do you see? That's a good question to ask a future husband or a future wife. What do you see? What do you see for our future? Because if you can't see it, you're not going to go there. So God gives every man and woman vision. That's purpose. That's meaning. And you'll press through bad times, difficult times, painful times, unfair times, setbacks, because God gave you a vision. And God says that vision, though it tarry, you wait on it. You serve it. It will surely come to pass. How about a good, a good amen this morning, right? Optimism is a personality trait that is good. It brings good health, the ability to persist, and have lots of friends. But there's one type of optimism that's negative. Sometimes young people say, I can hang out with the wrong people and it won't affect me. That's bad optimism. That's not based on reality. I can do drugs and not get addicted. I can have multiple sex partners, not get pregnant, or not pick up some disease or whatever. Sounds good optimistic, but not based in reality. I can do something dishonest. I can cheat, and I can get away with it. Maybe you can for a while, but you will ultimately get caught. That's not realism there. So, my optimism is based on the reality of God's Word and God's promise. Paul has an orientation in life so powerful that optimistic just isn't big enough to cut it. Sitting in prison, not knowing if he's going to live or die, this is a real person. He says, I eagerly expect and hope. I wake up in the morning. I eagerly expect and hope. I look at my chains in this dump of a dungeon. I eagerly expect and hope. I wait for the word to come that could mean my life or execution. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be honored or exalted in my body, whether by my life or by my death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What are you going to do with a guy like this? You can't stop him. Prison can't hold him. This is not little optimism. This is not groundless, mindless optimism. This is optimism based on a person, our Lord Jesus, and His Word. 
So, Paul is inspired by Christ. He's guided by Christ. He's loved by Christ. He's held by Christ. He's sustained by Christ. He's intoxicated by Christ. He loves Christ. He serves Christ. He follows Christ. He lives for Him. Christ is His magnificent obsession and orientation to all reality. Therefore, when he faces a problem or chains in prison, he's got verse 18. He says, but what does it matter? I have all these problems. Eh, what does it matter? In the Greek, it's actually a little more punchy. It's just two little Greek words, tis, T-I-S, gar, G-A-R. Let me translate it. So what? Big deal. Who cares? Whatever. That's great. So you face something this week that goes wrong, and I'm sure some things will go wrong. And when you do, do like Paul. Yeah, so what? Who cares? Big deal. Whatever. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So what? The water heater goes out. So what? I'll get another dumb water heater. The car breaks down. So what? We'll get it fixed. We'll tra- trade cars. The pastor messes up. So what? Send him on rehab to Tahiti. <laughs> Failure, disappointment, chains, imprisonment, rivals, suffering, poverty, martyrdom. So what? The important thing is that the magnificent Christ who was crucified and resurrected has now acted, therefore the kingdom of God up there has now come down to earth, and I get to be part of it. And Paul says, because of it, I can tell you today that no matter what happens to me tomorrow, I will continue to rejoice because joy is not a feeling of happiness based on what happens. It's a condition of my soul. It's a sense of well-being. I know that my Redeemer lives, and because He lives, I can live also. I know He's in control of everything. And when Jesus exploded out of that tomb and rose from the dead, that was God's great so what? Big deal. Who cares? Whatever that we get to fling into the face of darkness, despair, depression, and yes, even death. Because of the resurrection of the death, the atonement of all sin, no matter in life or death, angels or principalities or powers, so what? Big deal. I win no matter how you cut it with Jesus. And so that's what real joy is. And God says, now Summit, go out there and spread it around. Amen. For more information on Rick Godwin and product available, visit SummitSA.com and click on Bookstore.